Welcome to the Transatlanticist podcast at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host of the politics podcast, Andrew Sola, and today I'm absolutely delighted that we're taking the transatlanticist on the road for the first time since the coronavirus pandemic. I am in the beautiful city of Oslo in the beautiful country of Norway with my handsome guest, <laughs> Dr. Trygve Svensson. Welcome, Trygve. Thank you for Thank joining you. me today. Thank you, Andy. I'm delighted to be here as well. And thank you for all the compliments, which, by the way, I totally agree with. Yes. So today we're here with Dr. Svensson because he is our expert in Norwegian politics. Dr. Svensson was the Deputy Minister for Trade and Commerce in 2013 in Norway. He then did his doctoral degree in rhetoric from the University of Bergen in 2018. After that, he worked in the office of the CEO for Equinor, which is the new name for Statoil, the old state-run oil company. And he is currently the director of the center-left think tank in Norway. And the title of that think tank is Agenda. Is that correct? That's also right. Andy. Okay. I can read your handwriting. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, that's I'm the impressed. First, the first good news is I can read <laughs> his handwriting. So we have a number of really important subjects to discuss today. We want to discuss internal politics issues in light of the elections coming up. And so we will talk about some issues that I think might have been important for the elections coming up, namely the COVID response by the current government. Also, maybe a little bit of a discussion about Norway and immigration and refugees. We'll talk about Norwegian oil and the climate crisis. And lots of these issues actually connect to external mm -hmm. foreign relations issues. So we might talk a little bit about uh, the Norwegians' attitude towards the Trump presidency and now the Biden presidency. Also, maybe Norway and NATO and the Afghanistan withdrawal. And indeed, we might get into other issues like some new initiatives you're working on here at your think tank about uh, the freedom of expression in light of the Breivik killings and other issues, and also issues about inequality and equality. So that's a huge number of issues. Oh. Basically, keep listening, and after an hour, uh, we will have solved all of Norway's problems and made a good start. And we start can all go home. <laughs> and we can all go home. Yes. Okay, so why don't we just start with a preview of the elections coming up in Norway? I'd love to. In front of every election, you'll always say, oh, this is the most important election in forever, right? We always say that. And of course, I'm going to say it this time as well. And I have to admit that I really feel it because we're going into the 20s, you know, and um, and it's a political decade where, uh, in my perspective, in Norway, uh, we have to solve two, two really huge political challenges. One is the climate challenge 
And the second one is the inequality challenge or crisis that, that I call it. If we don't turn and get things moving in the right direction within 10 years, especially when it comes to climate, which is, of course, a global issue, then, well, that's an existential threat to humankind. I'm, I'm sort of thinking that we're seeing a revival of politics uh, and also in my movement, the social democratic movement, which is which has always been a movement with a huge belief that politics should change society, should govern society, should be in the head of society. But for the last 20 years, I mean, after Tony Blair, uh, Third Way, uh, where, where many social democrats thought, well, we also need to make some space for the market to work. We can't be the type of old school governing from the 70s. I think now in the face of climate crisis, you see social democrats, uh, center-left politicians who are thinking, well, politics needs to take a, a much larger role, both when it comes to climate change and also when it comes to regulating technology, for instance. Right. So, and just just to go back a little bit for our listeners who who might not be aware of the third way concept in center left politics, uh, we can also trace this back not only to Tony Blair in Britain, but also the Clinton. Should, uh, the, but yeah. the Clinton. I'm thinking of the U.S. audience. Yeah. The Clinton. Um, Clinton was very pro business, mm. and so the the center left parties, as we would characterize the Democrats, as well as the SPD in Germany, mm. and your own center left party, uh, became more pro business. Yeah. And in around the 90s, and, and you're suggesting the same conceptual shift or ideological shift occurred here yeah. in Norway with your party too. It was a huge, uh, huge shift. It came around 2000. And suddenly you had, for instance, Equinor, where I worked, it was called Statoil. It was the state-run oil company. It was basically the architect of our huge oil fund, you might say, in combination with the the tax policies, where they pay 78% tax of all they make. And it was really seen as a tool to make sure that uh, all the oil that we found in our North Sea uh, should benefit all of society. And suddenly, uh, around 2000, you could could see how some of these state-run companies were working around the world. And I visited some of them, the Mexican, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, which is not very efficiently run. And we thought, okay, we'll put it on um, on the market. We'll put it on. We'll make it a a regular company, and we'll privatize it. The state will still own sixty-seven percent, but it will be run pretty differently. Are you talking about Equinor now, or the Mexican? I'm talking about Equinor. Okay. Uh, So that was a huge policy shift that happened around twenty years ago. The same happened with Telenor. Which was which is a telecom company, and it's it's a pretty interesting story. I mean, this was a directorate. It was it was a place you had to apply to have a telephone in your house, and it usually took about three months <laughs> <laughs> before you applied, and then you could get a telephone. And now they are a global company with three hundred million customers, mm-hmm. and it all grew up. and And this happened in, in many companies around twenty years ago. Uh, so that that that's what I'm talking about when I'm uh, with this third way mm-hmm. way of thinking. But now many of the people who were central then they now say that okay, that was not. I'm, I mean, this is why I'm a social democrat mm-hmm. because it was a good idea at that time. But at this time, I think we need 
more politics, mm-hmm. to put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. Less market, more politics, more direction. It's not going back to the 70s, mm-hmm. but it's doing things that could actually save the planet. And you believe, just to go through some statistics I brought up here, you believe that your party will be the winner of the next election. I just have the lo- most recent statistics uh, from in English, I should say. Mm. And your Labour Party is projected to win 24% of the votes. This was from the mm. start of July, so they're about a month old. And the current ruling party in a coalition, a conservative mm. coalition, the Conservative Party, is at 21%. So can we trust these polls? And I'm going to ask you about yeah, yeah. issues that are important next, but can we trust these polls? I mean, are you confident? <laughs> yeah, well... I'm never going to say I'm confident because, well, I'm not a politician, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of with one foot in politics and one, mm-hmm. one foot in uh, what you, you might call the academic world or, or research world. But you wouldn't find a, polit- a single member of the, of the center-left politics in Norway now who, who will take the victory for granted because they did that four years ago and lost. Mm. So they will say, and I support that, that this is hard work all the way. But um, yesterday there was a poll that where the Labour Party was at twenty seven percent. Okay. Uh, the Centre Party, which is a coalition part- partner, was at fifteen. Uh, the Socialist Leftist Party was at eight. So that's a solid lead. We also have our own Nate Silver in Norway these days. Uh, okay. It's a, go- a guy called the Jürgen Bosta. Uh, he used uh, Bayesian statistics, the same method as Nate Silver. And um, I checked his website yesterday, <laughs> and the chances of the the conservatives being reelected yesterday was one point four percent. Okay. So I mean, <laughs> that's that, I mean, I mean, I remember everybody was so angry at Ned Silver when Trump got elected, but but that was like he was at thirty percent chances, right. right? So that's like you go into a plane. And t- three of ten planes will fall to the ground. Right. You know, you won't do that. But this is this is more like okay, it's it's w- w- yeah, one point four. Right. So so th- yeah. this is funny. And, and so <laughs> Silver's projections were yeah. actually good for yeah. the first Trump victory against Hillary Clinton, because many people it was like this one and a half percent chance yeah, that Trump yeah. will win. But Silver was way up at thirty. I don't I don't yeah. remember the point, but. So, so obviously, so these polls, we'll just say you're cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. But people have to get out and vote. Yeah. Uh, out of curiosity, what is the level of voter turnout in Norway? Well, it's been, uh, sadly, it's been, um, it's been decreasing for years, but it's like, uh, in the, the municipalities elections is always a bit lower, around mm-hmm. 62, 63%. I think, uh, well, it's really difficult to know with COVID and everything, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm hoping 67, 68% mm-hmm. maybe. I don't have that. Uh, yeah. yeah, sorry for asking. No, that. that's I, I should have checked that myself. That's bad research no, on my part. No, you can no, blame but, me. No. But I mean, the turnout in the last US election, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. Um, one argument that I make and others make as well is that the divisive politics of Donald Trump actually energized yeah. a new generation of voters. And I always look for silver linings and everything. 
Yeah. And certainly getting more people involved in politics ought to only be a good thing for democracies. So I, I think since it's, this is an academic audience, I think it, it sort of gives uh, Chantal Mouffe a little point against Habermas, you know. She says polarization is good for politics. Now right? you're beyond my academic understanding, but <laughs> do explain. Okay, so so of course I'm a part Habermasian because I love his, his point about rationality, that mm-hmm. that's something that happens not in the middle of somebody's brain, but it happens when people have a good conversation. And this is where we should look for rational decision-making. And I, th- I think that's a fantastic way of somebody who came out of um, the Second World War to sort of save rationalism mm-hmm. as a concept of human, mm, uh, as a human value. You know, it, I, maybe he sort of saved the, in the Enlightenment project with mm-hmm. that idea. And then, of course, Chantal Mouffe, who, who, who has a different political, she's not a social democrat, for instance. He's a social democrat. She's, um, she's more of a socialist and also finally inspired by Carl Schmitt. So she says that, well, this whole idea of Habermas that uh, you should just have this great dialogue and it will follow these rules and then everybody will be happy and things will be rational, which is tabloid, you know. Mm. Um, it's not really true because politics is about enemies. Mm. It's, about, it, it's about enemies trying to win. And that's democracy. So, you, so it's called, she, I think she, her term is agonistic pluralism. Uh, so antagonistic, yeah, antagonistic, antagonistic. Sorry. So, 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 so she, and that's what energizes the public, Mm -hmm. and that's what makes people turn out to vote. So, I think it's an interesting reflection to uh, to uh, to bring along when we want to understand Trump and and the last election. Well, let's let's not go there quite yet. Uh, Let's let's go to the the list of issues that you think. Are, effect, are most affecting the Norwegian electorate now, which which social, political issues or whatever. Mm. And and I, of course, as we were talking the other day, I had a list of things that I assumed that the Norwegians should be uh, thinking about mm-hmm. and would be influencing the le- elections. And they were all wrong. <laughs> like uh, the coronavirus pandemic response by the current government. And you're like, no, no, that's really not decisive in this election. No. So... Uh, since I'm totally wrong about all of these things, tell me what are the major issues? Because okay. my research has not has not been, been good enough. Hey, if you like, I, I'm I'm having an op-ed this week actually in the largest new pa- newspaper uh, in Norway, and I get and and it's about this because uh, and the title of the op-ed is uh, why hasn't Anna Solberg, our prime minister, why hasn't she strengthened out of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. So. I guess there's many reasons for that, because if you look at, for instance, Denmark, pretty similar country to us, and Mette Fredriksen, she is the prime minister there. Uh, she got uh, 26% in the election, and now she's polling at 33 and doing really well because she's such a she's been such a strong leader uh, during the pandemic. And if you look at Boris Johnson, which is, I guess, the most opposite politicians to Mette Fredriksen as you can find he's also doing well mm-hmm. even though the COVID response in Britain has been terrible in many ways right so but somehow many leaders around Europe has come strengthened out of the COVID response uh, it doesn't appear to be the case in Norway you could have you could use like a sociological broad uh, explanation that this is a society with a huge level of trust between people. I mean, this is where we pull top 
in in the world and also trust in your government government institutions yeah yeah we trust each other our institutions if you lose your wallet on the street there's a huge chance you'll get it back i have a book in the shelf here in my office written by a friend of mine called homo solidaricus Mm -hmm. which is actually will be published in germany okay uh, also and it's about um it's sort of rutger bergman a couple of years before he he came with his book you know humankind Mm -hmm. it's that People are de- decent, they're nice, and they trust each other uh, if you give them the chance. Or or if you have trillions of dollars of oil money and gas money to ah, spend. No, well, that's, now, that, now. that's a typical mistake. You know, that's, I'm that's, an American. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's the mistake. Yeah. The thing is... we Outline the argument for me, then. So the, the reason we have all this money in the bank and we are rich is because of trust. Trust comes first, then uh, the money comes. Because... If you trust each other, and this is something we actually worked on when I was state secretary, that our biggest value, the reason our businesses are able to uh, compete worldwide, uh, I mean, this this sounds disgustingly bragging, I know, but okay, I'll, I'll just go ahead and, and say it anyhow. So the, what, why is it possible that on the west coast of Norway, uh, you have small companies far from the market with the highest wages in the world who are able to compete globally they sell all their shit globally you know they they don't sell to a a home market Uh, it's because they work more efficient than anybody else in the whole world why do they work so efficient it's not it's not because they have a special form of intelligence it's because everybody trusts each other so Mm -hmm. if you screw up you tell your boss immediately if your boss screws up you tell him you Mm -hmm. screwed up Mm -hmm. Uh, that's because they know that you won't lose your job uh, and if you lose your job you have a social security net so trust is like the highest currency uh, and our biggest value and that's why I'm so intensely uh, occupied by uh, inequality Mm -hmm. because in some regards we're moving in the wrong direction now but still we trust each other so the COVID response I mean people did what the government told them to do in in this city Oslo they took such a huge toll people basically lived like you know hermites i guess mm-hmm. or something for such a long time so 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 that's one of the reasons that i think people many people think it, it wasn't the solid leadership of the government it was basically a quality of norwegian society that made this possible and then also, and this is sort of funny, uh, I guess, is uh, when you're talking about the political opponent, but uh, the prime minister screwed up on a couple of occasions then this spring also. For instance, after one and a half year of COVID, she had her 60th birthday and she held a sushi dinner at a resort, a ski resort place called Geilo. Everybody in Norway knows this place. And... Um, like she, so, this is like Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, she, she when everyone had, is supposed to be in yeah. lockdown, and she and had fourteen people she, for dinner. She he yeah. he went to this Michelin star restaurant in San Francisco or something with yeah. all while everyone else was supposed to be at home. Yeah, you know? yeah. So she had four, <laughs> she had fourteen people for dinner, and uh, and that was just I mean the. If if some if there was one thing everybody knew at that point is you don't have fourteen people for mm-hmm. dinner. I think the limit in some municipalities were ten. Mm-hmm. Here it was like in Oslo it was like five whatever. 
I remember especially there was this one political commentator in in in, in a fairly conservative news outlet. You know, the um, uh, TV Two. It's the second largest of the of the news outlets, and he just he just had a meltdown live on television because he was standing in his garden, and. <laughs> And he was like, my wife, she just came from a, the 50th year birthday of our best friend. They were standing outside in the garden with huge freezing. jackets freezing <laughs> two meters apart. And my daughter, uh, who's 14, she can't have her friends for birth. And he would just he was raging. Mm-hmm. And then the prime minister, who'd been giving press conferences daily for a year, has 14 people for sushi. Yeah. So this was inside, su- not even gate. freezing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, I think and something changed at that moment. Yeah. I, I actually think so. This is, I mean, this a breach is of trust. Yeah, you're saying it was a breach of trust. And if she's fallen three, five, seven percent in the polls, you're saying that it's because she broke the sacred yeah. thing in Norwegian society, the yeah. trust that we're all going to follow the same rules. She That's broke the, that, and yeah. it's on her then. It's, yeah. It yeah. Was, so I, are I th- people in her own party criticizing her for this, no, or do no, they no. like? They just they don't talk a lot about it. Mm-hmm. But I think it was a, sort of a hard blow because she's been a, a very fascinating political figure the last eight years and hugely popular in many ways uh, because she has this uh, ability to to sort of be apolitical in a way, and uh, and she does also she just does a lot of. You know, funny stuff like she has no, no problem with wearing wearing funny hats or you know she has this Boris Johnson thing going on where 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 she doesn't take herself that seriously mm-hmm. and and I think that's for the conservative party that's a huge benefit because usually conservatives are stuffy yeah so so that's something that people uh, like about her. And they were planning to have her center of their campaign, so of course it was really shitty timing with Sushi Gate, you know. <laughs> uh, so I think uh, I think uh, something changed actually at that moment, which is uh, that's also it's. I mean, everybody can make a mistake, mm-hmm. but uh, in politics these things are pretty ruthless, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, interesting. So let, let's go back. Uh, what are the top three issues? Generally speaking, Norwegians are worried about in any election. Well, in this this election, what well, what are it, the decisive yeah. issues? So trust, you said, and mm. this is something I'm I'm super happy about actually because the biggest issue. Well, there's been a huge. There was a big article, front page article, a, co- a couple of weeks ago in uh, Oftenposten, which is like the the main newspaper from for Oslo, and. Uh, and it was that uh, social inequality is now the thing that people in Norway are most concerned about, uh, and that's social inequality as opposed to economic inequality, or no, are they linked? It, I, the, the Norwegian term was sociale forskjeller. It would mean something like social differences. It's about inequality mm-hmm. in the economic sense of the world mm-hmm. word. But also, but it, but this is really broad, right? It's about um, housing. It's about health. It's about education. Uh, it's all of these things, and in one way, I was happy about it because in uh, Uganda, we've been working with inequality since we started up. We, I mean, we brought Thomas Piketty to Norway when he was really early, you know, just and when we translated his book, uh, Capital of Twenty First Century. So we did that 
early and, and it's been sort of like our signature issue uh, that we've been working on all the way. And I think in a small country like ours, if you have an organization about 10, 12 people and you work on something and it, it, every week mm-hmm. you have somebody from us writing an op-ed or participating in a debate, it, it has a, an impact, you know? I mean, this is a small country, 5 million people, a small public sphere. So I think maybe we have, um, we sort of contributed to this. Uh, and then, of course, it's because inequality has been actually, re- there's more inequality now than it used to be. And then, of course, people get more concerned. So, mm-hmm. so you have the public perception of stuff, which is not always follows the rules of logic, mm-hmm. as everybody would know. But it's also because people can actually observe it. You know, if you want to have an apartment in Oslo now, and you're a, say you work as a nurse, uh, you only you, you can afford to the 2.4 percent of the apartments in Oslo. Mm-hmm. We're not used to that right. here. You know, we're not used to that type of level of inequality so this is you're saying the working people of norway are the ones feeling that somehow they've been screwed over the last 20 years with the movement to a third way politics and suddenly they're wanting to fight back yeah yeah i don't think they attach it to third way politics i think they just but they attach it to so the, the way society is moving in a way, because mm-hmm. there's been so many things happening since third wave politics of 2000. But but yeah, I think it's it's about you have to give people a good deal, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an example, it's a sort of fun example I use from my hometown of Bergen on the West Coast, which is um, one of the voting circles in Bergen. Uh, voting circles, would that be constituencies? Like it's it's a... Uh, uh, I don't know the English term for it, but but when you have the municipality election, you have a district, district. So, oh, so voting district, yeah, voting so. district. So one of the voting districts right next to where I grew up, they uh, in the, suddenly it emerged a political party called Bumpenge Partia. It's the party which only issue was how much how do you how much do you have to pay when you drive your car through through the t- toll station I yeah, guess that's it yeah. so you call it the toll station party or something right. a, real, a real single issue party single issue party <laughs> and, uh, and they were like there was they were a bit Trumpist in their way of speaking if you see what I mean I mean they they resented all politics that has to do with environment in the city they resented everything that had to do with 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 uh, trying to get you know, less cars into a city that was built in the medieval age that mm-hmm. wasn't really built for, you know, mm-hmm. 250,000 people driving cars in and out. Uh, and they didn't want the tram, the new tram that we were building. They, they were really like a huge populist. But they got in this district, they got from zero to 43% of the wow. votes. So what happened in those four years? This, this this district was suddenly, and this is normal working people's district, uh, where people need their car to get places. And and they were suddenly surrounded by toll stations. And they didn't get, you know, uh, free buses or, you know, they didn't get anything back. So society just gave them a really shitty deal over the night and they got pissed off and they voted hugely. 
it's, for the toll party. It sounds like the Yellow Vest protests yeah, in France, yeah. which started because of the rise of petrol tax. And the people who live in the country who drive all the time yeah. don't have many economic opportunities, and they need their cars to work and do what they need yeah. to do. And it's just a failure of understanding the reality of yeah. certain working people's lives. That's it's the same stuff. It's the same thing. And that's why... In, you asked about the most important issues, and I mean, there's many answers to that. But uh, we have we we have this thing that we've been talking about a lot the last couple of years, and that's just transition. That's that's like the term we use, and it's also a term being used by the International Labour Organization (ILO). They also have like this just transition as a policy like a headline for their policy uh, because as they say there's no jobs on a dead planet mm-hmm. so we need to get through this green transition we need to make uh, um, society sustainable we need to fight climate change but it's totally impossible to do that if you don't challenge the uh, rising inequality mm-hmm. yeah i mean you you have a lot of at least here you have would you will have a lot of environmentalists who are also pretty elitists, you mm-hmm. know, and, and they don't understand the challenges of working people or the challenges of people who don't live in the big cities. Uh, and then you can go ahead and you can be as sustainable as you like, but people won't buy it and they won't vote for you. So so that's, this is, that's the sort of micro example of the toll party, which is also the example of Paris, the mm-hmm. Yellow Vests. Mm-hmm. It's what started a revolution in Lebanon also lately. And, and, and you have so many examples of this. I, I want to, to touch on the point you made that lots of the environmentalists are elitists, but also lots of the senior politicians or people who want to be senior are more elitist. And one thing we noticed in the U.S. in the last four years is that Many people are trying to tell the Democratic Party in the U.S., you know, you're becoming a party of the educated, Mm. urban, cosmopolitan Mm. types, the Mm. San Francisco, Mm. uh, Chicago, New York, and you're losing the backbone Mm. of the party, which was always the the working people, the and also lots of the uh, factories, for example, in Michigan are not in Detroit, as many people think. They're spread all around the, the state of Michigan. But you're losing that type of working person. And, and I was wondering, uh, as you said with these environmentalists in Norway, if you're starting to see something like a similar shift where some of the, maybe even your own party, is forgetting its real labor base, mm, let's say. Mm. Are you seeing this shift as we've seen in the U.S.? Basically, mm. I'm sorry for this it's long a great question. question. It's a great the U.S. Question. is now becoming, they're going to say, the Democratic Party is going to be the party of the cities mm. and the Republican is the party of the countryside. Yeah. Which is a terrible development, right? And um, in in Norway, the, the Labor Party had this slogan that that been running for 70 years. It's called... In Norwegian, be olon han i han, <laughs> which is something like the city and the countryside uh, hand in hand, because it's a party for both. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole trust issue, right? That you trust each other. And, and I have to say on this question about uh, elitism, 
it sort of gets to me, you know. You, you went through my bio. I have a PhD. I'm a director of a think tank. I worked in Equinor. I, I have. I mean, it's pretty easy for somebody to tick me off as an elitist, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's really easy for me too. Yeah, yeah. I already did it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I am worse. So, I'm even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. White so, privilege in this room. So, so. Um, uh, and I, I, of course, I spent some time thinking about this because I think identity politics is sort of like the death of uh, uh, everything in a way, uh, but also identity is important. So my background, I come from a, I come from a, a family of farmers uh, on the countryside. Uh, I grew up with a single mom uh, who was a nurse. My grandmother... Uh, who died uh, last January, she had seven years of schooling. Hmm. Uh, whenever I had a good grade in in the school or later in the university, I always called her up to tell her about it. My name, Trigva, I'm, I'm named after my granduncle who was, um, who, who was running trains between Oslo and Bergen all of his career. His great sorrow was that his father didn't dare to take up a loan so he could take an education mm. he really wanted to but it, this was they, they, they simply couldn't afford it and he was sad about that he was proud of his job he did an important job but he was sad that he was never able to go to school so the labor, labor movement made it possible for a guy like me who comes who then is the first guy with a master's degree in the family the first guy with a PhD all of these things is because of the labor movement. So I sometimes hear, you know, mumbling like, yeah, everybody's getting so elitist and some everybody and you have this PhD and everything. And it really, I feel they piss on the grave of my ancestors, you know, and mm. I feel they piss on the grave of the pioneers of this movement because the whole point is, and, and this did it really it fires me up mm. because the whole point of this freedom movement is that people are supposed to be able to fulfill their potential in life, you mm-hmm. know. And and for me, that has been, I, I love reading books. I love politics. I love trying to understand stuff. I love to write. Uh, so because of the movement to build this country, I've been able to do those things. It's effort, of course, but I would never dream to say that it it's I made myself. Mm-hmm. I'm a self-made man. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't believe in self-made man. I believe that society makes things possible. And the whole point is that pride has to go both ways, right? So my best friend, my oldest and best friend, he came from. We both grew up in the suburbs, and he came from an even rougher area than me. I don't. I didn't. I, I, I didn't come from a rough area. I came from, you know, typical, yeah, my, my mother was a nurse. She, she made a safe home for me. Uh, he came from from uh, from a bit rougher background and he didn't even finish um, high school. So he had like eight years of education, a lot of back and forth of his life. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to deliver everything. Understood. But a couple of years ago, he got a job as the uh, in a canteen, you know, like making food for people at the workplace. Mm-hmm. And now he runs the canteen, uh, and he has a small daughter, and he's doing really well. And he writes to me all the time, and he says, "I'm proud of you, man." And I'm writing back to him, and I'm saying, "I'm so proud of you as well," you know, because 
I'm just as proud of him as I am of my PhD and everything. So, so it's, uh, and that's the whole point of this society and this model is that we, we can't, we, we can't get into a dynamics where we're pointing at each other, you know, them, the academics, them, the rural people, them, the working, whatever people, you know, we just have to be equally proud of people who get up in the morning and try to do something. Uh, and we need to support them who are not able to do it. I mean, this is such a huge challenge of our times because we're them. I mean, actually, I read a speech by Bill Clinton once about that. He said something like them, them, uh, the color people, them, mm-hmm. the women, them, the mm-hmm. Hispanics. We're theming ourselves to death, I think right. he said. And, and, and a, a huge strength of this society is that we haven't been theming ourselves to something. And we need to, that's, that's so important that we need to, to turn around. You were talking about antagonistic, the concept of antagonistic yeah. politics. Well, certain elements of the American political culture have mastered that mm. in the last couple of years. Yeah. And indeed, and it's sad for me going home to see how uh, it, it seems that anywhere you go, you are immediately categorized mm. as either part of the home team or part of the away team. And, you know, it's really good that, and I hope uh, for the sake of all Norwegians, that you're able to avoid the us or them politics because that way goes uh, very, very bad bad outcomes. You know, Andy, it's a digression, but if you allow me, I did, mm-hmm. I did an art project back in 2004 uh, called America versus America. Hmm. And it was because I was so angry of the invasion of Iraq. I thought it was, the, I still think it's the biggest geopolitical disaster of this century. And we're going to live with it all century, all of this century. And I'm still a bit angry of the people who voted for the Green Party in Florida in 2000. Hmm. <laughs> but uh, what we were seeing here then is that um, a lot of people just thought about the U.S., which I think is, is in many ways the greatest society in the world, even though you have these issues, these huge, I mean, the American Republic is something I love. The American Empire, I'm a bit more skeptical to, and uh, the American inequality, I think, is terrible. It's a terrible, terrible thing. But anyhow, I love the Republic, I love the ID. Um, I agree with Leonard Cohen, you won't like what comes after America. But but we did we saw that people were just talking about the U.S. in general as something bad, you know, and so we decided we wanted to do an art project to show that I mean the biggest resistance against the Bush policy was happening in the U.S. Yeah, my my mother, a librarian, a high school librarian, was at the front lines <laughs> of the protest every day after school in downtown Chicago because yeah. she said, "I don't want the kids getting beaten by." Police, I'm a little old librarian. No police is going to beat me up. Yeah. And she was right about that. But yeah. yeah. And this is what I love about the US, right? So we came there. I mean, two scruffy students from Norway. And, well, I know one Norwegian and one Swedish. And we said, eh, we want to show people in Europe that the US is pretty <laughs> great as well. And there's a lot of people who don't agree with Bush. And everybody, I mean, uh, they just true things at us you know mm-hmm. we were able to fill big galleries in and we had an exhibition of political art post 9-11 in 
Gothenburg, in Oslo, in Reykjavik, and people would would you know they would find we didn't even have to finance the stuff mm-hmm. you know they were so happy to to show their activism and art uh, it was really amazing and I've been in love with American politics ever since basically because you just this type of generosity uh, and willingness to do stuff was fantastic you know people came to Reykjavik on their own bill to do a performance to to put up art but but uh, I guess uh, I remember I was sitting in Berkeley, of course, of all places, <laughs> uh, talking to a guy about this project, America versus America, and he just said a bit dryly, "Well, you know, in a way, it's always been America versus America. That's the history of this country. It's a mm-hmm. very violent place, and it's always been a lot of internal opposition." Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful, a wonderful way to. I think cap off this section of the podcast because we can use this as a nice transition in one minute to some of these external issues outside of Norwegian politics. So you're, we're going to just wait on our predictions for the Norwegian elections, but they're mm-hmm. coming up on what date? 13th? 13th of September. September. Uh, and it looks like it's going to be a change and it's uh but it's going to be super exciting, of course. There will be a peaceful transition of power, I presume. That I can guarantee you. <laughs> that they, nobody, the parliament will will not be invaded. <laughs> okay, very yeah. good. I do want to move on to two issues now that I think are important from an American perspective. And it does go mm. back to the Iraq war and even before that, which is 9-11. Mm-hmm. And Norway's uh, involvement in the NATO mission in Afghanistan mm-hmm. for nearly 20 years. Mm-hmm. Were your troops in Afghanistan until basically last month? Yeah. Did, they, have you been with the mission for all of the 20 years? Yeah, it was an Article 5 uh, huh? situation NATO in yep. NATO. So we went in uh, directly. I mean, this is... I haven't worked a lot with defense policies, Annie, mm-hmm. so I, I, this is what, sort of my generalistic views. But What do Norwegians think about the Afghanistan mission and how it's ending? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I think, I guess, as the nature of the Afghanistan mission, the, the, the people, way people have been thinking about it has changed. Because, I mean, immediately it was an Article 5 situation, right? And slowly it crept until being more of like a nation building, uh, nation building situation or nation building policy. And this happened uh, during shifting governments, you know, conservatives, center right governments, and also uh, center left governments. And we've been there all the way. And for a while, I think people sort of bought into the idea that uh, that we could um, have a real impact and build a new society, democratic society in Afghanistan, and girls would be able to go to school and so forth. And uh, there was interesting journalism about uh, how how the society worked there. And I had a I just read the the, the book of our current chief of staff. You know, he he wrote a book about. Um, leadership basically and it's been a huge bestseller here and he he's a bit different as a chief of staff because he 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 has a long experience as a special special operations soldiers he's mm-hmm. a really like elite he served in afghanistan yeah he served many times in mm-hmm. afghanistan and uh, 
and uh, he well basically what he says is that in the first couple of years it seemed like they were able to the alliance were able to provide some safety for people and and they i mean they would rather have that than taliban in many ways and then especially after the invasion of iraq a lot of the focus shifted to iraq and a lot of the um, strategic stuff happening was about winning the violence or, mm-hmm. or w- war making and less mm-hmm. about building society mm-hmm. and uh, at that point it just started going down i'm not a huge expert no, on but no one no one really in norway is saying we should continue the mission no or, no, no no i think i think uh, i mean isn't this uh, it seems like this is where empires go to die in a way you know right everybody made the same mistake in a way, uh, somehow and and if you Again, I'm going to have some disclaimers because I think it's such a huge, serious issue, mm-hmm. and I haven't studied it. Like, but I, in retrospect, maybe what the, the 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 appropriate response might have been: this is an act of criminal terrorism, 9/11. We need to go in. We need to find the people who did it. We need to put them to justice, and that's it. You know. But yeah. that's uh, that's. I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge discussion. And what happens if you strike an empire in the center right. of of an empire? It's it's not going to be. Uh, it's going to be heavy. For the purposes yeah. of our podcast today, it is playing zero part in the Norwegian elections. Mm. It has People. nothing. To, yeah. it, no one, I haven't seen a single. No. I, I mean, if something. Um, Geopolitics usually mm. doesn't play a big role. Okay. Uh, interesting. Uh, which is interesting since we're a small country, very mm. vulnerable. Just mm-hmm. look at the map. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a reason we have, we, we want to have a good relation with the US. Just look at the map, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're not a member of the EU. So geopolitics and is... And you share a border with, NATO, um, with, with Russia, Russia. Yes. and have disputes about various North Sea... I'm sorry, Arctic... Arctic... Some disputes, Waters. some were. Uh, this has been sort of like the pride also of of Norwegian foreign policies that you've been able to balance the relationship with the sleeping bear, with the Russia, our huge neighbor, and a lot of cooperation in the north between Norway and Russia, but also very clear on our commitment to NATO and and being a part of the Western alliance. Mm-hmm. I think if you want to, um, the the big issue coming up now is China. You know. That's that's but it, but we're, I don't think well, it, we're, I, we're, we're not going to talk. About <laughs> we're not going to go there. Let's not go there. Instead, what I want to do yeah. is draw the last comment you made about Afghanistan yeah. policy from the start. I've been paying obviously very close attention to this for 15 years. I taught soldiers yeah. uh, at various NATO bases around Europe, so my entire career with my university, uh, my first university, was. 15 years with the Iraq war going on, watching the mm-hmm. wounded soldiers coming back to Lanshtul Hospital through Rammstein Air, Air Force Base. I saw it every mm-hmm. day, well, except when fighting season was concluded every year in the winter, the, the medevac planes came in every day. Um, what Biden said, which I thought was a compelling argument, is I'm not going to send another generation of Americans to fight this war. Yeah, It's 20 years is long enough, and I kind of believe that. But he said something like what you said as well, 
this isn't a defeat, like the defeat of empires or anything like this. We did what we had to do. We wanted to find bin Laden and make sure that Afghanistan wouldn't be a breeding ground for uh, terrorism. We did that. Should never have been a nation-building exercise. Mm. I think factually he's right, but of course history is about shaping narratives. Yeah. The, the culture. He was trying to shape how we remember, how the world remembers the Afghanistan project. And he was trying to say, let's not remember it as some sort of defeat or anything. We accomplished our mission to defeat al-Qaeda there. Okay, fine. Um, obviously, there's a huge debate in Washington, D.C., and the Republicans are trying to say, oh, this is an American defeatism, mm. you're turning tail and running, and you know, we'll see. This is all this labor of... Um, controlling memories. And I'm mm. going to use this as my very long segue into our last subject for mm. today, which is the sad subject that we're leaving for last. Mm. The horrible killings 10 years ago of 77 people, eight here in Oslo and another 69, I believe, on the island of Utøya. Mm. Uh, the man and Anders Breivik um, mm. killed uh, in the worst massacre in Norwegian history, mm. at least in living memory. And well, I want you to talk a little bit about this and how this memory is being shaped mm. by by culture and society here. Mm. Who does this belong to? Is it a is it a tragedy for all Norwegians? I've heard some people say he was. this was really a right-wing Norwegian targeting left-wing Norwegians or a conservative Norwegian targeting mm. liberal Norwegian. There is something like a battle about how we're supposed to mm. remember this tragedy. Um, so why don't you just tell me a little bit about the 10-year anniversary of, of the Breivik massacres? And mm. I know it's a huge subject, but... Yeah, yeah, it's a huge one. Talk to me. Maybe I can get a little personal in the beginning and just sure. give people context. Uh, I mean, now we're sitting in our um, in the offices of Uganda. Uh, it's right next to the headquarters of the labor movement and also the prime minister office. So we're basically sitting 400 meters for the, f from the place where the bomb blew off. I used to bike across that square at the, exactly the time when the bomb blew off. Uh, every day to get to kindergarten you know Norwegian dads we go to pick up the kids in the kindergarten but it was uh, it, I was on paternity leave with my third child my son uh, at the time so I was home and I remember the windows I remember I had this strange feeling and then I went into the room where my son was sleeping and this is on the other part of town and the windows had opened you know they blew up from the what you call the pressure, the mm -hmm. wave, of the shock the, wave, shock wave. So I just closed the window, and it maybe half, ten minutes went by, and then I got a text message from, from some friends in Bergen. Are you okay? And I was like, What's what's happening? Mm -hmm. uh, and suddenly we started understanding that a huge bomb blew up in Oslo, and um, I remember writing on Twitter after a fairly short time that this is our 9/11, but we will handle it better. I wrote, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> it means we won't go to war, to you know, because I was sure it was Al Qaeda, you know, at the time. As as revenge for joining the yeah. the Afghanistan mission, yeah, yeah, okay. or uh, Iraq War. I was Re thinking about okay. that, yeah. Or we will handle it differently. I mm -hmm. think maybe it would be the word. Uh, 
but anyhow then some hours went by and uh, it turned out it wasn't uh, it wasn't a al-qaeda operation it was uh, a right extremist uh, who did it and he uh, after blowing off the bomb he went to the youth camp of the labor youth and he, he did uh, he started all his terrible killings as people know and people know this story so I went to work on the day after stopped my paternity leave my wife um, took over and um, I started working and I got in charge of writing the memorials the eulogies of the kids who'd been killed at Udaya Mm -hmm. so I got to know all of the 69 kids who were killed there Mm. Uh, because you needed to have a sort of like organized system about it mm-hmm. um, and um, I mean I was it was pretty fairly early in my career I was 33 at the time 32 33 but I, I had this training in rhetoric and communication so so, so uh, you actually know all of their names and stories I know all yeah. of their names and stories uh, and we were a pretty big group in the beginning I mean we, we gathered like 20 people because uh, we and we made some basic rules like uh, no one is gonna get their psychological health destroyed by this work Mm -hmm. so take a break give Mm -hmm. me a word Uh, we'll bring in psychologists and so forth if you need it and you don't have to do anything Uh, but and the second rule was we're not gonna make any mistakes Mm -hmm. we're not gonna write something in these eulogies that are not factually correct Mm -hmm. and we got everything correct except one thing and that was the birthday date of one of the kids a guy who was supposed to i think turn 17 Mm. but he was killed just before he he was turned turned 17 so that was um that's a sort of like um a big black hole inside of me um well inside the country and inside of country and then now we have this wonderful thing that you have this whole memory literature. We have, I mean, our publishing company has published three books about uh, since it's the ten years, since it's ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, but I don't read it, mm. you know. I don't. I don't read the books. It's too traumatic. I don't read the. I don't watch the watch the series. I don't watch mm-hmm. the movies because it's just. I did that job, and then I did. Um, I went to a psychologist uh, some time after and I did a lot of heavy crying and stuff Mm -hmm. and now I focus on the politics of it and the politics of the thing but it's and and, and I think people need to everyone has to find their way of dealing with something like that but it was it was the most of course the most extraordinary experience I, I, I well it's 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 but it was a really in one way everybody came together right mm-hmm. and it was uh, in the party political party people were supporting it. I mean I remember coming uh, on the day after this happened I came uh, to a place where the survivors had met up in one of the labor movements um, offices and they asked me if I wanted waffles, you know. They were sitting in the the, the, the clothes that they've been given because they had to swim to get off the island. 
and they're like, hi, Trigva, would mm-hmm. you like some waffles? And you have this enormous mobilization of I love. didn't realize that, yeah. by the way. That yeah. they, to escape, they swam. There's a lot of people swam oh. to escape. Wow. They, yeah. And a lot of people were picked up by volunteers in boats who came on to rescue because people are great. Oh. You know, people come, they put their own lives in danger to save somebody. Everybody did what they could, you mm-hmm. know. And of course, as a society, it, it was this huge wave of the reaction was like, okay, uh, a couple of days later, it was the biggest, dem- it's not a demonstration, but like the biggest turnout of people mm-hmm. in our history mm-hmm. uh, here in Oslo. I think more than 200,000 people in what we called the, the, the Rose Train, which was like the or no a rose parade i guess you know where people they didn't applaud but they had a rose and they mm-hmm. raised it and you had the uh, because the rose was a symbol of the of the labor party uh, and you would have um, in front of our main church you would have the rose sea where people would just put down flowers and so forth so the immediate reaction was uh, and i guess i i could sort of felt that you when i said we're going to do it differently than 9 11 i I could i could sense something in you and i just if if you can let me put it in context you know because i remember bush standing on ground zero and i'm going we're going to find these guys and it's either you're with us or you're against us and so forth and if you compare the speech that jan stoltenberg gave you know the prime minister at the prime minister at the time he was like, "This is an. We're going to fight this with. We're going to have more openness, more democracy. We're not going to be naive, but we're going to fight this with with the best parts of our society." He wasn't going to war, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So that that's the sort of like that's what I'm talking about when I mean reacting, mm-hmm. responding differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's two different situations as well. I, I actually yeah. draw a connection to them, nine eleven and the Breivik massacre because the intervening issue was the conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq and the refugee mm. issue from mm. the Middle East and Afghanistan. Norway has taken in plenty of uh, Islamic refugees and immigrants, and Breivik was complaining specifically about the so-called Islamification of yeah. Norway. So I do see a through line from the 9-11 attacks, mm. the NATO and the U.S. response, the subsequent migrant refugee crises, mostly Islamic immigrants, and then Breivik, mm. the Breivik massacre. Am I reading too much into this or... I th- that I think uh, no. I think that's an I think that's an argument argument we actually should follow. Um, I'm not sure if we agree, but that's okay. I think the big thing is the Iraq invasion, of course, because that sort of changed the geopolitical face of the Middle East, right? And I I'm I'm, I'm I just want to repeat. I think I'm it's with the, you on that. Uh, by the okay. way. My first yeah. my first publication ever was in 2004, a piece. Uh, against yeah uh, that yeah it's it's it, and and of course that made you know you wouldn't have Syria you wouldn't have a lot of things if it wasn't for the invasion in Iraq but Breivik he was his line of thinking is this well it's this line of thinking that's been grain, gaining ground in Europe 
for the last 20, 30 years maybe. It's this Eurabia conspiration, we call it, that there is, a, there is this elite in Europe who wants to make Europe an Islamic state in somehow. It's a, it's a conspiracy nutcase theory, but it's been gaining a lot of traction in some, you know, some in, in, in extremist uh, environments, basically. I'm going to disagree just a little bit here. The, I'm sure there's a conspiracy theory based to this. Mm. There are lots of people, and it's not a conspiracy theory, to see, oh, I never saw a woman in a headscarf before, but mm. in the last 10 years, now I see one every day. That's not a conspiracy theory. The, going back to what you said many minutes ago about understanding what people experience in the countryside mm. or how they're experienced. They're seeing that. Yeah. I mean, immigration is a reality. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. A, a conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it's that's why it's so extremely important to to meet these things with politics, right? With solid politics. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm not I'm not an open border uh, social democrat to put it that way. And I actually so th- this is something that many people forget in debate here but uh, the labor party was the first party who said we need to put a stop on immigration to norway because you had the first wave in the 70s people coming from pakistan because uh, you needed uh, you needed extra labor in some of the factories and you had uh, around 30,000 not a, not a huge number you know but in, in a small country like this it makes an impact you had around 30,000 came uh, and now it's a it's a fairly big group and part of Norwegian society. And I mean, the deputy leader of the Labour Party is uh, has a Pakistani background and so forth. And but the, it was the Labour Party who said, uh, okay, but that's enough. You know, we can't. We have to stop because if you have a welfare state of this type with this type of economy, you simply can't have freedom immigration. That's not possible in a world with the type of poverty we have with the type of of skills you need to uh, to be a part of uh, of the product productive workforce in Norway you need to have a pretty regulated very regulated immigration politics mm-hmm. so this is something i'm totally i totally agree on and we've been working a lot with that so you have to be tough to to put it a bit bluntly you have to be pretty tough on immigration but you have to be equally tough when it comes to integration policies. Mm-hmm. That it, when people are here, when they are accepted as a member of society, we need to do everything to make them a part of that society. You know, so you need schooling, you need education, you need all the stuff that makes them productive members of society. And um, well, you can compare Norway and Sweden. You know, we had fairly. Uh, uh, many people think about us as very uh, similar societies but if you look for instance at the refugee crisis uh, we had in 2015 after after Assad and his atrocities in Syria uh, and people were forced to run from Syria I think well your home country at the time Germany and Sweden those two countries took half of all the refugees during the refugee crisis those two countries alone took Sweden more than and enough. Germany. Sweden Syria. and Germany. Yeah. So Germany is, of course, a country with 80 million people. So you have a bit more leverage when it comes to to receiving people. Sweden is 8 million, 
and they took I think they they took well well over a hundred thousand people just during the refugee crisis and this is pretty important because if you're a you know welfare society high level of productivity uh, if people arrive they need to be able to go uh, to have a school and so forth <laughs> I remember reading uh, an interview with a, a, a mayor you know typical Swedish solid social democratic mayor in Södertälje you know mm-hmm. s- city outside Stockholm and he said you know every Monday in all of my schools there's a kid arriving who doesn't speak a single word of Swedish many of them can't even read or write and I have to to you know make that work in schools where people <laughs> for mm-hmm. teacher it's it's just it's too much for a society of that type to handle in a way so i uh, i strongly believe that uh, you need to have a v- regulated immigration politics and i strongly believe that the labor movement has to be in the forefront when it comes to issues like social control you know mm-hmm. and uh, freedom of speech and women's rights and all of these things if you want to be here be a part of norwegian society this these are that's the playing rules here so 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 that's that's why we need to uh, keep our uh, i don't know the english word we, we yeah we just have to to try to think clearly in these debates right and yeah. and you do such a good job of explaining <laughs> these points but you kind of moved away from the the point that I was trying to make about Breivik. And yeah. So I read this article about the 10-year anniversary of, yeah. of, of Breivik by uh, Sindra Bangstadt. Are you familiar yeah, with Yeah, yeah, I, okay. I know him. So this was in The, in the Guardian, mm. and he wrote this, and I just want you to respond to this. Uh, Breivik's, this was published in The Guardian uh, mm. a week or two ago. Uh, Breivik's terrorist attacks posed a profound challenge to the long-standing national sense of Norwegian exceptionalism when it comes to racism. I, so he was among those who argued at the time for a national reckoning with the far-right, racist, and Islamophobic ideology that had motivated Breivik. For I know perfectly well that his ideas about Islam, Muslims, and the left were much more common among Norwegians than many were willing to let on. So do you think that uh, there is an undertone of racism in Norwegian society that Breivik exposed that you try to ignore? I mean, how are you dealing with the far right Mm. in Norway? Mm. I, mean, a, I just, yeah, I just don't know. It's I, thought, great, I read that and yeah. I thought it was interesting. It's a great question. I think I don't. I don't think there's a lot of racism here. I think you know the classic sense of racism where you judge people on the basic of the color of their skin, mm-hmm. you know, and their cultural background. I do think it's a totally legitimate concern about what immigration will do to a, a country like Norway, and that's something that all mainstream politicians need to address, you know. And um, four years ago in 2017, immigration was the thing that Norwegian voters were most concerned about. Mm -hmm. And that's totally fine, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it's totally fine that people are are wondering about hijabs or uh, which I don't mind, but niqabs, I think, is is something, it's a concept that I 
I simply don't understand how 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 that's how that can be has something to do with freedom, you know. And and of course, people are worried when society are changing in that way, and that that needs to be met in my regard with the, I guess the mm-hmm. two things I said: straw, uh, pretty strict immigration politics, and very and strong integration politics Mm -hmm. so that you fight social control you fight all of these things and we've been working a lot with that Mm -hmm. agenda i don't agree with the racist point okay that 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 norwegians that i i i mean there's been so many examples of when you had of course there's racists here uh but when you had racist killings or racist policies mainstream norwegians show up in huge numbers to protest it. It's also the 20-year remembrance for the, a racist killing in Oslo this year, Benjamin Hermansen. And when that happened, he was killed basically because of the color of his skin. And you also had this huge mobilization against racism when that, that stuff happens. So I don't agree with Sindel Bangstad on all of his points, uh, basically. But 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 I think it just makes it important that mainstream politicians on both sides are able to talk about the challenges of becoming a more multicultural society and the challenges of that we live in an age of migration mm-hmm. uh, and they, you can't ignore that stuff. Mm-hmm. You have to give people solid political answers to it and then they'll be, you know, uh, that's not racism to discuss mm-hmm. those things. Yeah. Yeah. You do such a wonderful job clearly explaining your view and the view of the Labour Party. And as, as you've been talking, in my head I keep going back to this wonderful slogan, city city and country hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just think it's such a nice <laughs> way, you know, it's just such a simple phrase. And I just think because we have antagonistic politics, so mm. many places in the world having a, a slogan like that, just basically trying to say we're doing this together and your descriptions your nuanced descriptions of Norwegian society I think really helped me understand the general uh, togetherness that one experiences when you come here this is not an advertisement for Norwegian tourism <laughs> but it's really a, it's a really a lovely place to visit so yeah, there you yeah. go that's my that's my endorsement of Norwegian society and nice. and one thing you do notice here is is that people really do have a sense of, of community and, and togetherness. And so I'm going to let you have the final word here. And and you can talk about about Norway, but if you have any advice to to Americans no. about what's happening with division in our country, yeah. uh, please. <laughs> please. No, well, if you don't mind, Andy, yeah. there's one thing. Since, since we're talking about the 22nd of July, there's one point I wanted to make. Uh, which might also be relevant for the question you asked about division, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's been a lot of discussions after about freedom of speech. Uh, because, of course, this guy, the terrorist, he was uh, radicalized because he spent a lot, long, a lot of time on online forums and debates where people were spreading these, you know, conspiracy theories. And and uh, some of the, some of them were people who were uh, simply concerned about immigration and how it would change the country. But some of them were just basically crazy, nutcase theories about you know Arabia mm-hmm. conspiracies. 
And some mainstream politicians would do what you guys call whistleblowing, I think. That's the word. Or dog, no, whistle. Dog, dog, dog whistle. Dog whistle. Dog whistle. Dog whistle, right? So they would play on that stuff. Mm-hmm. So you say something that sounds... Uh, it sounds fairly okay, but you're also socialized signalizing. And I think that's... I, th- I think it's the most ugly discipline in all politics. And so freedom of speech is at the center of any good liberal democratic society. It's our greatest inheritance from the Enlightenment, right? And at the same time, uh, you have this uh, insight that I guess the 20th century, a lot of humanistic research in this 20th century showed us that uh, speaking is a form of action. You do speech, like John Searle talked Mm -hmm. about, and Habermas Mm -hmm. talks about it, and everybody. So I guess one of the interesting interesting things that I that I hope we can learn young people now is that you have freedom of speech it's the most wonderful thing it's the greatest gift it's what makes society go around it might what's make uh, our, it, it's the biggest it's the way to solve conflicts in, a, in the best possible way and your words are actions mm-hmm. your words change the stuff in the world so you have a responsibility right. for how you use words. And this, this debate has been going a bit back and forth the last 10 years. And you will have some people who and I've been in, in, in a couple of debates about many people I respect, you know, deeply as well. And they say, we have to have a clear division between what you say and what you do. There is a, the, 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 that's the big difference. And that, that what's make a, a liberal society possible where my position is freedom of speech is the most important value we have and when you live in a society with freedom of speech if you want to be a grown-up person you you must be aware of that your words are actions that that you are free to act with your words and that means if you say something if you for instance if you say something to a person it ha- it, it potentially has a huge effect on that person you should be able to, and in the public square, like in the public debate, in politics, we should be able to be harsh, clear, have huge arguments, and be aware that these, that's actions. And um, I just wrote an op-ed by the leader of the Young Conservatives, actually, mm-hmm. and he, he repeated that view, you know, that as a young politician, I'm able to say what I want, I have the ju- judicial freedom, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to say what I want, uh, and I'm responsible for what I'm saying. And it's 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 crazy simple, you know. It's it's a very simple point, but somehow I think we're slowly getting there. That you, everybody will have freedom of speech to, to do, to, to, and it's a broad freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, types of hate speech, of course, and threats and so forth are not allowed. But you, you are able to put on all types of political views and you're, as a person, you're morally and politically responsible for what you say. Mm-hmm. It's simple as that. Um, what? I, I don't understand the impact of this. Right now, uh, are Norwegians not allowed to say certain things besides the obvious, like screaming fire in a crowded theater? Mm. Are there... Oh, they are. They are. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So but who is who is against who is who who wants well, to police 
one's speech in Norway more closely. I mean, after the twenty second of July, especially actually the young people in in uh, who were attacked, you know, uh, they said people need to think about what they say. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a responsibility if you, if you spread Eurabia conspiracy theorist. You have a responsibility for for, for what happens, you know, this for the massacre. impact that yeah. will happen, yeah. you know, because we've been killed because people mm. believe in this mm-hmm. stuff, and they were attacked pretty heavily mm. by mainstream political commentators just for making the simple point, uh, because that was some sort of uh, censorship, right? You know? So you you don't think that Twitter should have banned Trump from tweeting? I think January sixth. Well, I think it was a good idea that they did that because it was a matter of public safety. You know, it was uh, people were okay. getting killed. It, it, it. I mean, he was. Wasn't he then? Uh, sort of like the guy screaming fire in the theater. Uh, at the well, point? yeah, that that was a bad. I shouldn't have used that example because it gets really complicated. It's a private company; they can do whatever they want. That's also so true. legally. You know, it has nothing to do with the legal. <laughs> you know, a legal uh, thing. And also, I think for the global mental health, it. I think it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> As I often say, yeah. the the worst job during the Trump presidency was to be a U.S. foreign diplomat waking yeah. up on the other. side of the world every morning wondering what what, what was tweeted and oh was it against his country that he or she is serving in yeah. and if, if his day was gonna his or her day was gonna be terrible it like was, i don't know it's crazy i never got any info yeah. about it <laughs> anyway uh right so uh do you think that another bravik massacre could happen is this is is that been um, it, i mean this is an open society no. you know And if you lose that, you lose everything mm-hmm. in a way. I don't think so. Uh, I think, and I also think that uh, our police has paid more attention to to right wing extremism. There was an event last year, I think, uh, where a, a Breivik a guy inspired by Breivik tried to attack a mosque, mm. but he he didn't. He killed his stepsister who was mm-hmm. adopted. And uh, in her home, mm. and then he went to the mosque to kill people, but he was stopped by two brave guys mm. <laughs> in their seventies nice. who were able to hold him down. But that was it was a sort of like like the New Zealand mm-hmm. attack, you know, mm-hmm. same type of uh, um, they're they're you, you often called lone wolves, mm-hmm. but it's a wolf pack. Yeah. It's but it's a digital wolf pack, mm-hmm. and they influence each other because words mm-hmm. matter. But uh, but so we this is something we can't be sure about. I think we might also just for the sake of rationality and our own uh, mental health, remind ourselves that we don't live in dangerous times when it comes to terrorism in Europe. It's it's not not like the level of terrorism is. It's been higher before. It's we live in pretty safe times. Mm-hmm. Violence is down. This is not a dangerous society. Europe isn't a very dangerous place to be, and there's a lot of great things happening. Uh, I think we live in a time where you have some of the most beautiful political changes happening, and at the same time, you have some of the most destructive and dangerous. and uh, And we live under the Chinese curse, you know. We live in interesting times, basically. Yeah, yeah. We do live in interesting times, and I guess. 
it depends on how you view them, because every time can either be, as Charles Dickens said, the best of times, the worst of times, the age of wisdom, or the age of foolishness, because someone's already saying one extreme or the other, and I guess politics is navigating that middle position between all extremes. That was such a wonderful discussion, Trigva. Thank you, Dr. Svensson. I know way more about Norwegian politics and society now than I did an hour or so ago, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Andy. It was a pleasure and an honor. We can talk for many more hours, but maybe we'll do this (laughs) via Zoom in the future. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the America Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.